The biggest piece of ableism I've personally encountered and a lot of people who can pass for normal is invalidating us saying, you don't seem autistic, I don't believe you're autistic. It's part of the theatrics, like I put in to get that result where someone feels entitled to just dismiss me like that, I have to put in a lot more effort than I appear to be putting in. It takes a lot of practice. Justin Robbins is an autistic advocate who champions inclusion, awareness, and acceptance. With his advocacy work, he challenges problematic narratives about autism and inspires us to rethink what it means to be autistic. Hello, this is Sindre and the I Bounce Back podcast. Every second Wednesday, we talk to people who share their inspiring stories. You will hear our conversation with Justin in just a couple of minutes, but before, let me thank our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Restaurant.com. With Restaurant.com, you can save at thousands of restaurants across the country with just a few clicks. Their dining deals range from $5 to $100, never expire and cost you a fraction of the face value. Dinner has never been easier with Restaurant.com, used for dine-in, take-out or delivery. Restaurant.com is offering our listeners 50% off their next purchase by going to www.restaurant.com slash podcast. That's www.restaurant.com slash podcast for 50% off your next purchase. Restaurant.com, the best deal every meal. This is episode 16, Justin Robbins, There is nothing tragic about being autistic. So officially, officially, I was diagnosed a couple, just a couple years ago in college, but unofficial, like it was uh, confirmed by like my ther- like my therapist, like beyond and me beyond all reasonable doubt in high school. There's just a little ambiguity there, I tr- so it's hard to kind of succinctly explain. Um, another important thing to keep in mind is that so I grew up in the early 2000s where often was like kind of understood, but it was still like relegated. And I, I'm not saying I am smart, but I certainly appeared smart. Um, as in, I was very bombastic with when I knew something. I made sure everyone else knew it. Like my first big special interest was astronomy. I love everything I know about space. And I constantly let everyone know about the facts that I learned about space pretty close to real time. So, but no one thought of that. And the funny thing is because I was mature, because I like, you know, I knew to say please and thank you. I knew to be polite and I could speak. And again, because Austin wasn't like as understood as a spectrum as it is now, and it's still not that great, like publicly understood. I was, I spent like my whole childhood teetering on the edge between, oh, he's just a little sensitive. Oh, he's just a little nerdy. No, 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 there's nothing wrong with him. He's just a little different. That's all. Whereas like if I were growing up, growing up 
like even a decade later, like I'm confident I would have been unambiguously diagnosed. Like it's like, oh no, that that child who is reciting all the nine planets as a stim, yeah, he might be on the spectrum. So already I'm like caught in this interesting dynamic. So that's the background. So then fast forward to a series of very comedic events in high school. Okay. So based on um, the uh, the history class I was taking, a lot of the people I hung out with took one class and I took another. So I didn't have a lot of people I knew in this class. I am feeling isolated and I'm like trying to be friendly with other people in the class. And for some reason, I just kind of like was able to play back the conversation and I just noted how awkward it was. I don't know why that happened or just what clicked, but it did. So I'm talking to a friend about this and I offhandedly, offhandedly remark, and every time I do try to be social, it's like I have some kind of disability. And my friend, meanwhile, who had strongly suspected that I was autistic for years, basically just froze and got super uncomfortable. Like, so uncomfortable that I noticed. And then I got worried, like, wait, is there something wrong with me that everyone knows except me? Oh, no. And so that's when I start. I was, I talked to the therapist I was seeing at the time about that. And she suggested um, I get evaluated for autism. And that's when it came back. And, like, we were going through the, um, like, some tests in the DSM-4 at the time. It switched to DSM-5 a couple years later. It was like, oh, Oh, this is not ambiguous at all. Oh, okay. This is what's going on. So that's how I found out I was autistic. You were big enough to understand what it meant. So how did oh, you... Oh, yeah. Like I was... Yeah. When I found out I was autistic, I was a teenager. And like this was not a case of my parents knew and they didn't tell me or my teachers knew and didn't tell Like legitimately no one knew or suspected that I was autistic. Wow. So how did you react to the fact that you were autistic? Because there are a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions around it. I was ecstatic. I mean, it was an explanation. It was the best damn explanation I had ever had for who I was. It was validating. And it and knowing it like actively helped me, like helped me improve. It gave me an identity. It gave me it gave me some way to understand who I was. It was incredibly helpful for my mental health, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. And for your parents, how did they react and accept these news? Um, it's been a long journey for them. Um, I don't want to go too into it because it's my parents who I love dearly. Um, it's been rocky, although, um, and they were very skeptical at first and i but i will say to their credit that once i got like the official diagnosis like the official like insurance health insurance paid for it formal diagnosis um they believed me and accepted it without hesitation so they were they were they were skeptical um due to i think two reasons one is because of all the misconceptions and negative stereotypes surrounding autism they didn't want their son associated with that and the other is just, I think, a very practical thing that they don't see me in high school. They didn't see me in school. Like, like even they were, you know, they are great parents. But the fact is they just don't see me in class interacting with people my age. They see me at home. They see me on weekends. They don't really see me in, like, my day-to-day -day interactions. So they don't have all the information that I have. 
what were the biggest challenges for you growing up? Uh, because there are a lot of discussions about, you know, social interactions, difficulties to adapt to different environments, and probably every autistic person has a different experience. So what was the most challenging for you and how did you overcome these challenges or how do you work to overcoming them? Yeah, um, social interactions is definitely the big one for me. Um, I just, it's not a thing I grasp intuitively. Um, I have to, uh, well, that's more for, like for emotional introspection, I basically have to like brute force analysis it as opposed to just like having an intuitive sense. I mean, you know, okay, if I'm feeling angry, yeah, oh, I'm feeling angry. But it's like, well, I'm feeling stressed about this, but maybe a little about this. Like I have to like break it down, analyze it. Like it's very, I'm assuming it's different for neurotypicals. Wow, like, I don't have, I have to go like the circuitous, the long way around to get the same results. And again, that stuff isn't visible. So like, Another thing, like, going off topic a bit, like, the biggest piece of ableism I've personally encountered and a lot of people who can pass for normal is invalidating us saying, you don't seem autistic, I don't believe you're autistic, which is a pain in the ass. We'll get into that maybe later. But it's it's part of the theatrics. Like, I put in to get that result where someone feels entitled to just dismiss me like that, I have to put in a lot more effort than I appear to be putting in to get the same result as a neurotypical. Like, I mean, you know, with my close friends, yeah, I love talking with them. But for just like the normal day-to-day -day conversation, that takes a lot more effort. Or even if it doesn't, it takes a lot of practice and understanding the social routines to reduce the amount of emotional labor that's required. So it's basically adapting to what society dictates and imposes of how you should behave. Right. For example, eye contact. Um, eye contact is a thing that I, I don't like doing. But I figured out that if you look at a point a few degrees to the left or right or around a person's face, they don't really notice the difference. So you don't actually need to make direct eye contact. And they'll never know the difference. Wow, that's so interesting. That's very mathematical. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not a few degrees is like I'm just trying to give you an estimate. Yeah. So, like I don't actually like measure it. Yeah. I just kind of like pick like a you know a range of like a you know an area behind them that it sort of looks like I'm looking in the right direction. And of course, it is a cultural thing because there's many other cultures, um, a lot of African and East Asian cultures, where eye contact is something you absolutely do not do because it's super rude. Um, I think also in like the Roman Empire was also like a big taboo. But like, so, for example, um, that would not be a useful criteria in determining whether a person in those parts of the world are autistic, because that's a that's not actually just an that's not empirical. That is a cultural construct. I'm talking a little bit out of my butt, but. Yeah, but, I think the point stands. Yeah, but that's very interesting. So probably you're facing a lot of stereotypes. You mentioned a little bit. Uh, what are the main misconceptions that you hear about yourself, basically? So that's interesting. So again, like I am, especially at this point, I am very 
good at, at least on the surface passing for normal so i'll i like i have faced plenty of like difficulty from people's perceptions of my autism but a lot like i have been lucky enough to dodge most like the vast majority of ableism like other autistic people are not as lucky or as privileged as i have been um so like i can pretend to be neurotypical and like the people who are saying like bad things about autistics will almost certainly never suspect me so on like a personal level like i'm usually able to insulate myself feels like it's kind of always like acting yeah and it gets easy it's easier and harder at certain times um but yeah like especially um actually so so when I was in elementary school, I got like social, I was taken out of class for social lessons. And one of the things I was, you know, told like explicitly because I know autistic people don't get the memo is, okay, you can't talk about your special interest to literally everyone. You need to talk about different topics with some people because they might not be interested in that. Like I had to be told that. But what they don't tell you or at least it's not put in the right context, is that your interests are still valid. It's just that the fact is that you shouldn't be talking about it with everyone, sure, but you should be allowed to talk about it. So, like, especially, so, like, like the worst way, like, was in late high school, I was having to do, like, I was having to wait, okay, I know this person isn't interested in this, but I have an emotional need to talk about it. Okay, so what's more important, my emotional needs right now, or their emotional needs? And just having to do that, like that that cost benefit every single day for every single, like it makes you feel guilty for wanting to talk about the things you love. And I hated that. Uh, the solution was, um, at, turns out, after you leave high school, people are less of jerks than they are in high school. So, like, like, in, especially in, like for me in college. You can make friends with people who actually do share your interests and who want to talk to you about the things you love. It became, for me, like, it was a much more equal social relationship. And that's, like, a thing we're not taught in, like, in those social skills classes that, like, you should, you have the right, if you're going to be in a friendship, you should also be getting some emotional benefit from that friendship. Yeah. And we're not really told how to balance that with the don't talk about your special interests all the time. So what are your special interests that you would like to talk all the time about? Oh, so the, so some people have like one or two that they stay with. I mean, I have might have been like branching and multiplying. So like it started with astronomy and the solar system. And then it's just branched off to a thousand other things. Um, let's see, I, I took the um, I like history, particularly like non-European and African history, because it was such a new topic to me that I knew nothing about. Um, there's board games, card games, role-playing games, getting into some video games. Um, in the past year, I've added like three to my uh, my um, collection, so to speak. Um, mangrove forests, which is the thing that I'm studying or working with in my internship. Um, there is a particular card game that I'm working on that I love talking about because it's very near and dear to my heart. And then the um, the video game trilogy Mass Effect, which I just played a few months ago for the first time. And um, 
I've already replayed it like one and a half times. <laughs> <laughs> so you have already like a spectrum of topics that you can discuss. It's not just like one. Right, but they all follow a type. Like they're all, they're all like in a very niche n nerdy yeah. kind of thing. And that's true. Like there's some um, people's, like some special interests are more mainstream than others, which probably affects how normal they are perceived. Like, if I want to talk about astronomy with a bunch of other like preteens and teenagers, depending on my age at the time, like I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. And that's the other thing. Like I can pass for normal, but even back then, while nobody thought of me as autistic, nobody thought I was normal. Like, like, so like we, like I know some parents have talked about, Oh, I don't want to tell, I don't want to make my kid feel different. Like we're already treated differently. Like, if kids are very, very disturbingly good at spotting difference in other kids, and many of them will bully others for it. Absolutely. Like, we don't get to be... By ignorance does not protect us, it just makes us more vulnerable because the other, like, other kids do not follow that illusion that we are normal. And have you been bullied? Uh, in I was a fair bit in like um, an elementary school and middle school. Um, not really in high school, thank. Um, and I was protected from like the worst excesses of it. But yeah, it was not pleasant. The social isolation I had in high school, like that was not bullying. Like the people who I thought, the, the people I thought were my friends but weren't they aren't they weren't and are not bad people they just weren't honest with me which is kind of a jerk move but again it's not cruelty and they just weren't you know really compatible with who i was and where i was at the time like so i think it's important to say like i wasn't like there wasn't really anyone in high school who was actively trying to make my life miserable and yet I was still miserable. And I think that's important. Like, there's no easy villain to point at. Mm. And so I was Googling some information about autism uh, when I was preparing for this interview. And I saw some so many questions that I realized that um, they are not really discussed broadly. And we have discussions about autistic kids and diagnosis but there are not so many discussions around autistic adults. So I wrote down a few yes. questions. Would you, would you like to answer them? I will read them. I would love to. This is a huge problem because it's the thing that no one... So I think here's, I think, the root of the problem. So people... So again, autism by name has only been popularly thought about for a couple decades. As in, basically maybe one point and a half generations at this point, if that. So there's only been, there hasn't been a generation of known autistic adults. There's yeah. been autistic people since humanity began, but that's not the point right now. So I think what happens is these parents find out their kid is not normal. They freak out because they're following the medical model of disability. Oh, my child is broken. My child is diseased. We need to fix my child. They go to all this therapy that's all about conformity at any cost. 
like, okay, my child's going to be fixed. Child's in like elementary school, middle school. I'm going to fix the child. The child's going to be fixed. Child's in high school. Hey, we're getting a little weird. The child's a teenager now. Maybe we should think, no, I'm going to fix the child, fix the child. Graduation's coming up. Have we thought about what we're going to do for adults? Oh, my. And then graduation happens. Oh, my God. I spent no time thinking of what my child, who's now an adult, is going to do with their life. I've been so focused on making them normal. I've run out the clock. And I think that's part of the failed mindset and what the danger it can do because, like, there is um, a lot of laws in America. Most states, even, like, very deeply red states, have laws that, um, independent of the Affordable Care Act, that say you can't use autism as a pre-existing condition to take to not cover people on health insurance, which is good. That is a legitimately pure good thing. What isn't so good is the age that expires on, and that can run the gamut. Like in some states, it's up to 23, but like I think in Florida, that law only affects like 15. Like the cutoff is like 15. Wow. So like as far as the Florida state government is concerned, at least in terms of that law, autistic teenagers just flat out don't exist. Wow, which is not crazy, a- <laughs> right? And so like and. And it has other effects. Like, for example, the um, it's a thing for other disabilities, but the inability to think of disabled people as being interested in romantic or and or sexual relationships, because at least for autism, I think a lot of us, because we're viewed as children, yeah. they automatically with and so like, oh well, you're like a child. Well, children aren't in those kinds of relationships. Therefore, you're not in those kinds of relationships. Yeah. Which is super problematic because some of us are asexual, many of us aren't. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's like a, these questions are not addressed at all. Right, because a lot of the stuff is marketed, even if it's nonprofit, it's marketed towards usually white, suburban, middle, upper class mothers who've just found out that their young child is autistic. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, can we move on to oh, the questions yes. that I yes. found? It's yes. just like a few questions. So one of the questions were, what happens to autistic children when they become adults? Uh, well, we can vote. Um, <laughs> that is actually a very broad question because it depends a lot. I mean, in my case, I finished high school and I went to college and I made a lot of friends and it was great. For other people who need much more support, it means that they will have now an incredibly difficult time getting it because they start falling through the cracks. And that is a lot more scary. Like there's all this stuff about therapy intervention, but there's not a stuff, there's not a lot about say gainful employment. And by gainful employment, I mean a job with dignity that pays at least the minimum wage because there is loopholes, at least in the U S that allow some disabled people to be paid at like, really really low rates like below the minimum wage Uh, they're called sheltered workshops and they're not sheltered and they're exploitative um especially if there's co-occurring medical conditions it's hard to get find an employer and get insurance to cover that there is concerns about housing and living independently because those things aren't really thought about or taught in most places because again if you infantilize us, if you think of us as children, you never start thinking long term. Um, so it can be very, very scary for a lot of autistic people who don't have the 
who don't who are going to need extra help and haven't been given the skills or the resources to meet those needs. That's, yeah, that's a good point. And then I found another two questions that were contradictory. And it showed clearly that it's, it's like we lack of information, obviously. So one question was, do autism symptoms get worse with age? And another, can severely autistic children grow out of it? It's very subject. Well, my, my genetics haven't changed, but I've grown as a person like I've learned things I've both like literally I've like you know read books and learned stuff and I've had experiences I've grown I've made mistakes and I've learned from those mistakes so I appear like a well-adjusted normal person even though that's very much not the case on all fronts so like someone could um look at me and it's, and then look at me like 15 years ago and say, oh, look how much this person, you know, got better. But I didn't get better. I learned the skills necessary and I had the practice to pretend like I'm normal when I need to and to, you know, have less of a meltdown when a schedule changes because I, you know, learned how to cope with that. I've understood, okay, this is not actually a big deal. I'm going to have to work through this. And, you know, it gets easier the more you do that. Um, like, for example, I'm not good at cooking, but I've learned how to cook some stuff. I can cook for myself. I didn't have an inherent difficulty, I think, other than just a lack of experience. But, like, there was a point where I didn't know how to cook anything, and now I'm learning some things. And then I learned some more things. So I think it's just a lack of... And, yeah, it's a learning disability. Some of us have a really hard time learning those new skills, or those new just it's not even necessarily a skill it's more just uh practice or attributes or the ability to do some things and some stuff like some stuff some of us will never be able to do like and that's okay but the idea that we are permanently locked into a certain way is just not true and what about the question if autism can get worse with age so the, one of the things that I like about the DSM-5 that actually was um, autistic self-advocates fought to include was the, um, the flexibility that say you have difficulty in these social skills, including if the societal expectations then rise above your ability to meet them. So like in middle school and early high school, I was doing fine. I had all the social skills I needed. But, you know, once we got into the mid to late teenage years, the social skills that group required was greater than what I had at the time. So I think it's a, so like genetically and physiologically, no, I don't think so. In terms of like rising demand for needs, like, you know, once you become an adult and you have to live on your own, that presents a whole set of challenges that you didn't have before. So in that sense, yes, it can get worse, but not in a biological sense.
write a review, and then you can share it. With the world. In any social media platform. And then your friends see it, and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day, Podcast Review Day. And I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and CastBox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day. Which is on the 8th of every month, of every year, of every century, of every... You get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag PodRev Day, Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. PodRev Day. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag PodRev Day. P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y. have mentioned somewhere that very often the narrative when talking about autism is focused on the parents and not an autistic person. Why do you think it is so and what can we do to change this narrative? Why it began, I'm not sure. I think I'm assuming it was because it was first noticed in children and as for why that is, I'm honestly not sure. Um, and that's just, be- and then I just got stuck that autism is a disease for children, bring them, put them out of sight and out of mind. Um, how to fix that? You need to like start listening and paying attention to the needs of autistic adults and working on resources like employment and housing assistance. And, you know, for example, some autistic people, uh, have difficulty communicating verbally or outright can't but there is technology like aac uh, uh assistive alternative communication i'm not sure about the, the um, exact acronym that enables like communication to be possible like even like a relatively simple program and pre-programmed set of phrases on an ipad can make such a world of difference so like focusing on the needs here okay here's a more concise way Focusing on the needs of autistic people living to live good, fulfilling lives instead of trying to just to eliminate us or make us into neurotypicals. That is how the correct way to focus on to improve, well, yeah, to make the lives of autistic people and people around us better. Focus instead of trying to eliminate us or but either literally or via conformity, help us Um, give us the tools and help us live full, happy, fulfilling lives. Mm -hmm. And how does uh, that affect you when you hear this narrative, when people look to the autistic diagnosis as almost a tragedy? And in the media, this narrative really exists. I imagine that especially growing up or like being young adult, it should be very hard to understand how people look at you. And it can also affect your mental health oh absolutely um again like so i found out relatively late so i was able to dodge like have that not affect me at a vulnerable time 
but I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, at this point, it just makes me angrier than that, than anything because, and I guess sad that like other, there are kids out there who are being told that they are mistakes, that they are broken versions of some superior child. Actually, um, Jim Sinclair, who wrote this brilliant speech, an essay called, um, let me try to remember the name, Don't Mourn for Us, which is basically the foundational document of the neurodiversity movement. Uh, this is by uh, Jim Sinclair from 1993, but it's it's our like the beginning of the neurodiversity movement. Um, when parents say, I wish my child did not have autism, what they're really saying is, I wish the autistic child I have did not exist and I had a different non-autistic child instead. Mm. Read that again. This is what we hear when you mourn over our existence. This is what we hear when you pray for a cure. This is what we know when you tell us of your fondest hopes and dreams for us, that your greatest wish is that one day we will cease to be and strangers you can love will move in behind our faces. Yeah, that's that's really right and moving. Yeah. This was a, a big part of going back. Like, I think for most autistic advocates, there's a, a couple of common stages of development. Like first there's you trying to understand yourself and you find um, and the journey to find your own self-dignity. And after that, there's the acceptance that you are worthy and you have dignity, not because of your accomplishments, but just because you exist. Like you don't need, like, I like to think that I'm in, an intelligent young man. I don't need to be like a super genius in order to justify my existence. I don't need to be the greatest in whatever field I end up in just to earn my right to exist. I'm entitled to that because I'm a human being. And understanding that and then turning around and helping people who can't pass for normal as easily as you, who are more affected by autism, who are more likely to be the victims of ableism and worse forms of it as well. Like that is the next stage and like of being an dis a disability rights um, advocate when it's when it becomes not just about yourself but from the people around you and when you're offered like I guess this is similar to the model minority myth I don't want to I don't know enough about that to say this definitively but there's sort of like the the normal group like the establishment the enfranchised group you know says okay you know just ignore those other ones you're okay well here's this permission so you're okay and refusing that is like the the moment of growth when you're like no i could when you see yourself in those other people even when you know they are they do have you are different from them they are more maybe they're more affected maybe they have different backgrounds Maybe they have a lot more issues than you. Maybe they they also have other um, identities that you don't have or don't share. But when you believe in and add and work for their rights as well, and I am not, I, I'm putting myself, I'm making myself sound like I'm some super successful advocate. And like, I'm not, I'm a, I, it's fairly, like what I have done so far is, I think important, but relatively small scale, especially compared to others. But so I, mean, I guess I'm talking more. Yeah. So I, I've been I'm selling myself up a little too much. 
during this, but um, what I'm trying to get at is that mentally there is an important hurdle between just advocating for yourself and people who are immediately like you and advocating for everyone who is part of your identity and recognizing it as such. Mm-hmm. It was interesting that you mentioned, you know, the this sort of positive stereotype about autistic people that they can be exceptionally talented in some specific fields. Did you feel that pressure that you needed to prove that you are exceptionally good at something? Absolutely. Um, even before I knew I was autistic, I, I still you know, hadn't put enormous pressure on myself. Like I got really, de- like it took a lot to like forgive myself for getting bees in school. Um, and then the C's came in. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, which is why I like accepting the fact that I'm not going to be perfect at everything and that you know, maybe I disappoint myself and that's okay. That's a different, that's a topic for another time, but it's not okay to, for other people to, to, if someone believes in your existence because you are useful to them, that's a red flag. Like a lot of people, like you, you might've seen like in the research, like, oh, well, some of history's greatest geniuses are autistic. Mm. Well, what about the others? Like, if I like Einstein's one, like, I normally am do not like historically diagnosing people, especially because it's like, it's, it's sort, it feels sort of unethical unless it's very, very obvious. Like, Einstein was one of those like kind of obvious figures in my opinion. Like, okay, yeah, maybe Einstein was autistic. Einstein one got like had like two, at least two ground, like redefining theories. He won the Nobel Prize. His name is synonymous with genius. If he wasn't those things, would he still be a valid human being? And the answer is yes. But when you say like, when you put those people as like the example of the good kind of autism, you're saying, oh, you better, you're saying you have to do this much to earn the same amount of basic dignity and respect as would be afforded to any other neurotypical. Mm. And that is super not okay. And that is extremely toxic to us. You are proudly speak about being autistic and you advocate for other autistic people, basically for the right to be accepted as you are. Have you always been like that and, and very open or did this understanding come later? Um, so I, well, I first found out in, um, you know, late high school, where I kept it to myself and my closest friends, or, you know, the few that I had, um, which was definitely the smart, the smart choice, because there were some people who did not, you know, I was not, I was already thought of as the weird kid, even like, start like, at that point. So I didn't want to um, ostracize myself even more. Um, In college, though, once um, I started the group. I was pretty open about it because uh, well, that's the other thing. I, I like someone in my position can be more open about it because I have the I have the power to do that. Like I can act like a neurotypical enough until I choose not to. Like it's very hard for people who don't know me well to suspect that I am. Like some people don't have that luxury. A lot of autistic people do not have that luxury and that choice 
of whether to pass for normal or not is taken away from them or they never had it, were never given it in the first place. So I guess it's a sort of a solidarity, a little bit of solidarity, but it's also very much like I was, especially in college, like I was in a safe position to do so. Um, I think my, I, I like to think at least my understanding of like the transition from like my own self-worth to the self-worth of others um, was pretty quick. Yeah. Um, my, my transition between those two stages of advocacy from, oh, I am worthy of existence to all of these people are worthy of existence was relatively quick. Because um, I also found out like late high school, early college that even if you're in like the accepted type, that's not a, um, I'm using air quotes there, um, a guarantee. Like, one of the things I realized was, the, the thing that ultimately pushed me to come out uh, to my friends, that, you know, like my, or I shouldn't even say that, like my close circle in high school was that I can't, like, in the long term, I am incapable of hiding it. Like, I thought I was doing this such a good thing, and I talk this. I can do the neurotypical stuff. I can ask people about the weather. Look at me. I can't keep it up. Like in any long term, I cannot do that. And like again, they might not have known the word, but they knew like the if they knew it, if not by name. Um, and. I was sort of like at a spiteful pride, like, well, I can't hide it anyway. I might as well tell everyone or tell them um, kind of thing. But then once I became in a, uh, in a, you know, a better place where I was more respected by my peers in college, I, um, and I was, you know, leading that group, I, it became much easier and safer and just more empowering to do it. Yeah, it makes sense. And you have mentioned that it made a difference when you met an autistic friend. How important is it for you to be part of autistic community? Extremely. Because whereas even with my closest neurotypical friends, um, there are still some like difficulties and ambiguities that like they like I have to ex explain a lot just to get on the same page as them. But if I need to like talk about a certain like frustration or a certain like unique style, even like in a good way, like, Oh, this really amazing thing happened. But like, it's in a very like niche way. I have those people who I can relate to, um, who, and who I can relate with. And that's a very powerful part. And it's validating because we're feel and are taught, you know, Oh, you're different from everyone else. You're the weird one. I mean, we are, but, you're alone, you're awful. And then to have a community is a, where, oh, we're not alone. And you know what? We're proud of who we are. We like who we are. Stop trying to destroy us is very power, is very empowering. I mean, and like life-changing. Like I, like meeting my, the um, other autistic people, like, you know, not permanently, but it did, cure my depression like outright for at least several years mm. which is pretty damn good yeah yeah you mentioned that you were suffering from depression so was it was it related to to the fact that yeah you had difficulties to 
interact with people? Yeah, I, I just felt eventually I felt incredibly lonely. Like once I was at the point, I guess that's the other thing, like both because I was without it because of the class rotations or the schedule way my schedule shook out in junior year of high school. But, you know, I was also around the time that something changed in how my emotional wants and needs. I'm like, oh, I wanted to have more of like a relationship, like a friendship with people than I had previously wanted. So all of a sudden, like what I was okay with, like the level of solitude I was okay with became painfully unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And when I tried to reach out to people, I was politely, and I didn't even realize it at the time, shot down. And so I was all of a sudden, like my emotional needs changed as I grew older. And it got really bad. And like, given like my experiences with it, my mental health over the past several years, I think like mine, for example, is a little more situational based than it is an inherent chemistry issue. Like I have never, so like once I got out of high school and, you know, was in college, I was in a much better place. Um, you know, I've had like a, sometimes I've had a rocky relationship with my parents that has improved a lot. My siblings, my relationship with my siblings has improved a lot. Like we're all on good terms now. Um, and like that has really contributed to like making me feel a lot better. Like current events have made it that very, very difficult. But I have like a, a foundational like support now that I didn't have earlier in my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you're in, in a better place right now. We hear and discuss much more about autistic people. And I think you guys have a lot of pressure from the mainstream, let's say, society, which dictates and impose on how you should behave. And it can be stressful, especially for young people. So what advice would you give to young people who are on the autistic spectrum and maybe are struggling to find their place in society? Um, well, there is one, first of all. There is somewhere good and fulfilling for you even if you have to fight for it, even if you have to do it yourself, it exists and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, there are other people out there who have had your experiences, who are having your experiences and have made it through. Um, and it's important to understand like that our society is built in a way that is fundamentally not optimal for people like us. And that means that we have to there's a balancing act of us adapting to them and them accommodating us. It was a pleasure having Justin Robbins on our podcast. He advocates for acceptance and equal rights and opportunities for autistic people. The next episode will be ready in two weeks. When you say you know, I was in a cult, there's immediate judgment there, right? People immediately think you are an insane person. And so one of the big differences, you know, is when you're born into it. The new episode will be available on all podcasting platforms and the website ibounceback.net on the 4th of November. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye.